Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the BMO Financial Group Conference Call on COVID-19, what it means this week. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist, BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead, Mr. Belsky. Thank you so much, Marie, and thank you for joining us for our fourth consecutive week in terms of our COVID-19 conference call with Dr. John White, uh, Chief Medical Officer at WebMD, and three subject matter experts from BMO Financial Group. As we get started, just a reminder that I point you toward our BMO disclosures via the web link enclosed at the bottom of the invitation that you received to join this call. Uh, also, remember, given that we are talking about critical and very important medical information, just a reminder that if you need medical advice, please directly consult your physician and or healthcare uh, professional. Again, on the call today, we have Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer of WebMD, and three subject matter experts from BMO Financial Group in terms of their micro and macro outlook following uh, Dr. White. Uh, we will have George Farmer, uh, one of our senior biotech analysts at BMO Capital Markets. Then Michael Gregory, our chief, our co, I'm sorry, co, uh, chief economist for BMO Financial Group. And then myself, Brian Belsky, will tie it all up into a bowl with respect to what's happening in terms of investment strategy. Uh, we will, we will have Q&A following our formal comments, so please queue those up with Marie. Uh, as needed. Again, Dr. John White is joining us today uh, from WebMD. Uh, he is a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health care issues for nearly two decades. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagement at the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the USFDA. Please keep in mind also that Dr. White continues to see patients in Washington, D.C. and Maryland, so he is one of those frontline heroes that is trying to take care of all of us. And with that, I'm going to hand the ball off to Dr. White. Dr. White, go ahead. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And over the next few minutes, I'm going to talk about um, where we are, what we know, and what might be coming. So it's always good to start with um, a global perspective where there is 1.289 million cases, 70,000 deaths. But I also want to talk about what's happening in Canada and what's happening in the United States, North America. So in Canada, there's 15,496 cases as of 7 a.m. this morning with 280 deaths. It's interesting to note that the highest number of cases Really, more than half of cases are in Quebec, yet um, the majority of deaths are in Ontario. And there's been a recent study in Lancet that pointed out that whereas before we were thinking that the mortality rate could be between 3 and 4%, it's probably less than 1%. It obviously varies with age. For those less than 20, it's less than 0.03%. And for those in their 80s, 
it could be as high as 10%. But Canada has been talking about that they feel that the fatality rate is 0.66%. That compares to the flu, 0.1%, so it's still significant, but not as high as previously thought. And some folks estimate it's even lower because we don't have a true sense of the denominator. Both Canada and the United States have talked about the next two weeks uh, may be uh, a time period where we see um, the highest number of deaths per day. Um, officials in Ontario project that between 3,000 and 15,000 deaths over the next 18 months. That's how they're looking at it, a little different than the United States in terms of how they present the data. And approximately, they point out that 1,500 people die from the flu every year in Canada. So this would be 10 times that amount. And the hotspots in Canada typically are the senior residences in Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia, which, as you all know, are Canada's three biggest provinces. But if we turn to the United States, there's in more than... 1.8 million tests. I'm going to talk a little bit about tests because we've talked about that for the last few weeks. And that's really been because there has been a ramp up in the ability to test, both in terms of hospital laboratories, freestanding, the commercial labs, as well as these point-of-care testing. Hearing about um, one that really delivers results in five minutes. If it's positive, 15 minutes if it's negative. But those 1.8 million tests, there's been over 337,000 cases with over 9,000 deaths, currently 1,654. But what we need to keep in mind is that over half of those deaths are actually in New York State. The other hotspots are New Jersey, New Orleans, um, and Cook County. But an important point that I, I want to make out is that it was announced yesterday, for the past two days, New York City has seen a decrease in the rate of increase. So are we perhaps starting um, to flatten that curve? Perhaps. Remember, we're always looking at things two weeks ago. We're going to share some data later, but I wanted to talk about some projections that folks are talking about in the United States. Uh, Canada is actually coming out with some modeling very soon. But most folks believe that we'll reach the peak, the highest number of deaths per day, on April 15th. Um, And that by August, there will be a total of 81,000 potential cases in the United States. And when I send out... um, some of these graphs. I want you to keep in mind, because something that folks don't talk about that, that I think is all of you who are very interested in numbers will want to focus on, there's a big shaded area that no one talks about, which is this uncertainty in the data. Because the, the modeling changes every day based on new information, because behavioral change, social distancing, physical distancing, plays a big role here, and that the current models are weighted towards hotspots like New York. So that's going to have an impact on what the numbers show. But I think in terms of most folks do feel that a peak may be 
in in two weeks in, in on uh, April fifteenth, which is about um, eight days, what about eight nine days from now, and then the issue of where we are in terms of the number of deaths per day, and that's important because once we reach a peak, then we can have some potential changes in our mitigation strategies. So two important things that have occurred over the past week. The CDC announced on Friday a voluntary recommendation, which was to wear facial coverings to prevent asymptomatic spread. Because we believe that 25% of spread is when you don't have any symptoms. But it's facial coverings, not facial masks. And facial coverings typically are these cloth products. Um, and what they're saying is to wear these in public settings where other social distancing measures are difficult to maintain, such as in a grocery store or pharmacies. Everyone doesn't follow the rules or in areas where there's significant community-based transmission. And cloth facial coverings made at home are fine, and several websites, websites show how to make them. The Surgeon General has demonstrated one, and I'll share those links as well. But this is not to replace the physical distancing that we're promoting. It's not a substitute for hand washing. I will tell you the World Health Organization has not changed its recommendation to wear a mask or, or facial coverings. In Canada, Dr. Teresa Tam, uh, Canada's chief health officer, has said that they're still looking into that, so they haven't made any changes in Canada. Um, so is there the potential to stop the spread with a mask when you're wearing outside, a facial covering? Um, it, it's a possibility and it's something that you should consider. I talked a lot about testing, diagnostic testing, whether or not someone has coronavirus. But where we're really going to see a lot more discussion is on coronavirus antibodies. And last week, the FDA authorized a new blood test for coronavirus antibodies, which requires a finger prick of blood as opposed to uh, a nasal swab or a throat swab. And what that will tell us is whether a patient has been exposed to the virus and now may have some immunity. And the reason why that's important is people with immunity may be able to return to work sooner. Uh, they serve an important role as to first responders and doctors. And obviously, antibody testing can give us a better sense of how widespread and how uh, what the fatality rate is in the in the population or in your community. And it delivers the test in about 15 minutes. Um, and it's a qualitative test. It doesn't tell how well your antibodies are, so um, it's not completely clear, um, you know, how well it will protect you. Having worked at FDA, I wanted to point out an important distinction because the news media sometimes has covered it wrong. It's not an approval, it's actually an authorization. And that differs from approval in two key ways. And the first is the validation bar is much lower. And that's important to keep in mind. So as, as you know, the FDA typically approves products after a lengthy process that multiple human trials, hundreds of participants, uh, first to ensure that it does no harm, and then there is safety and efficacy. For diagnostic tests or other tests, that actually have to do what it says it does. But under an emergency use authorization, a company just has to show that the product works well enough in a trial with a few dozen samples. Getting the right answer 
at least 95% of the time. Um, and, and in this way, the process can be completed in weeks rather than months or years. But the second distinction has to do with duration. And this is important to keep in mind for these tests. An emergency use authorization only applies for as long as the Secretary of Health and Human Services has made a public health emergency declaration, which is what we have. And it's only in the context of that particular emergency. And what's also noteworthy is for these blood tests, the bar is even lower. Normally, you have to make the application. In this, the FDA um, is allowing these to be distributed without even having to actually apply for the emergency use authorization. And I will tell you there are about two companies that that currently are in this space of antibodies, which I think is where we're going to be going in terms of really trying to do some zero surveillance. I know some of the other people are going to talk about um, where we are in treatments and what might be potential um, opportunities. I wouldn't necessarily call anything a game changer, but I'll defer to uh, some of the other speakers. I want to talk a little bit about tech because I said I want to talk about where we might be going. And what we're seeing is how do we use tech to help, you know, curb the spread of the virus, particularly as we think about the use of smartphones and tracking where people have been. And some of you may have listened on to a call with BMO CEO where we heard a little bit about what China and South Korea have done with smartphone surveillance and how it actually can limit your movement in those countries. I'm not sure if that would be palatable um, in North America, but what is important to keep in mind that Google, as you may or may not have heard, is publicly releasing data it's collecting about people's movements during the coronavirus pandemic. So just as you may be, you know, use Google to know when uh, restaurants and, and gyms and other things have been busy in the past, it's actually planning to publish a series of community mobility reports. And that's going to show the types of places people are visiting across 131 countries and regions. And there was a preliminary report published on Friday. Because what we're trying to do here is that you, if you look at trends of tracking movements over time and by geography, that that can help shape and inform governments and public health officials' response. So they contain data from two to three days earlier, and they intend to show trends in how people are behaving and also responding to social distancing, which really we want to call physical distancing. And it, it'll be broken down by country and then by region. Uh, so we'll see if people are going to retail, pharmacies, work, or parks. Um, so that could be very interesting in terms of this aggregated, anonymized sets of data. But they're not the only player in this, and, and that's why I think this is noteworthy. Facebook is making their tracking data available through, the, with, through academic institutions. They're working with the Harvard School of Public Health. They're working with the London School of Hygiene and, and Tropical Medicine. And what, again, they're trying to do is to study where people move and then how often they encounter others in hopes of better understanding the virus. And then aggregating all the signals into a picture of how people are flowing and the likelihood that people from a town or neighborhood are going to come into contact um, with someone who has had the virus. And they're calling these disease prevention maps. 
There are other companies that are talking about if you have been infected with coronavirus, you would upload the fact that you were, and then they would identify uh, people that came close to you using location trackers, and they could send an alert to those persons um, saying that they need to be tested or they need to self-quarantine for 14 days. And, and that could be very interesting because we really don't have a public, enough public health officials uh, to do contact tracing. The other aspect are what's going to be the role of wearables as an early warning system for COVID-19. What if we start to see upticks in your heart rate uh, or your temperature or even your blood pressure? Would, would that indicate the virus? If you're not in, if you're not being as physically active as you used to be, is that a sign? What about your sleep patterns? Um, so there's really a lot of interesting aspects of tech that can help address the virus. But I think the biggest change that we're going to see over the next few weeks is how do we bring rapid testing to scale, both on the diagnostic side, we haven't got there yet. Um, and then certainly on the antibody side, that's going to be a major aspect, this rapid testing brought to scale, because that's going to impact our ability to exit uh, these mitigation strategies. So if I think about optimism, as we always like to end, is that there is some preliminary data that mitigation is working in many areas, and maybe we're seeing a true decrease in the number of deaths that slope in New York that we're having new testing strategies, both diagnostic and antibodies, which are going to have a big impact on improved surveillance and ultimately returning to some sense of normal. We actually have multiple treatments that we'll hear about that are undergoing real-world evidence trials. And we're having technology and innovation play a much bigger role now, um, and they're going to play a a much bigger role in the future if we think about is this virus going to return in the fall. So, you know, I'll just end with, you know, the four reminders that we all need to keep in mind. We want to stay at home. We want to social distance, you know, whether it's six feet or two meters. We want to have that vigorous hand washing, 20 to 30 seconds. And we want to clean and disinfect, you know, high-touch surfaces. That's how we're going to stop the spread. And with that, I'll turn it over to Brian. Thanks, Dr. White. Uh, now we're going to hear from George Farmer, one of our lead analysts in the biotech space. He's a senior biotech analyst for BMO Capital Markets. George, go ahead. All right. Thanks, Brian. Um, Dr. White, thank you so much for um, for that uh, uh, overview of, of the space. Uh, I think um, I hear certainly hear some optimism in your voice, and, and we're also pretty optimistic um, as we think about the therapeutic landscape uh, that's in front of us. Uh, yet this, today I, I'd like to talk about uh, some of the, uh, the therapies that are, that are in development. Um, when, I, when I talk about this space, I like to think about them falling into essentially three different buckets. Um, the first would be regarded as the antiviral treatments, um, which, and as well as other uh, therapeutics to actually treat the disease per se. Uh, the second bucket would be uh, supportive care treatments, and finally, the third bucket would be uh, have to do with vaccines. Uh, and the therapeutic landscape, where we've been following pretty closely some of the direct antiviral treatments that are ongoing clinical development 
and that have been administered on, on a compassionate use basis. Uh, specifically, we're, we're very intrigued with the potential of Gilead's remdesivir, which is undergoing phase three development, um, as well as other clinical trials where it's being uh, evaluated. This is a drug that is designed to directly interfere with viral replication. Um, it itself is effectively a, a, a dummy uh, nucleotide that will terminate viral replication in such a way that the virus can no longer copy itself. And this approach is widely used uh, for other antiviral treatments, notably um, HIV therapies. Um, to that end, uh, a Colitra, an anti-HIV drug that uh, is approved for tre- uh, 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 by uh, AbbVie, has also been evaluated and is continuing evaluation in uh, COVID patients. Um, there was a phase three trial that unfortunately did not turn out so well, but that may be because the patients were very advanced. Nevertheless, evaluation continues. Um, we expect we'll see some data coming from the remdesivir and Kaletra clinical trials probably around the April-May timeframe. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the use of hydroxychloroquine, uh, both in combination and uh, on its own, in combination with azithromycin and, and on its own. Um, the, the data that has come out has been admittedly spotty. Uh, there have been four published clinical trials, none of which appear to be quite robust in our view, uh, but do show some signals of activity. Um, I want to caution that this is really just preliminary data. Um, it's very important not to prescribe the wrong drug for the wrong patient because that can be fatal, especially with a drug um, like hydroxychloroquine, which has been proven to be quite safe overall, but we just don't know how this drug is ultimately going to behave in COVID-19 patients. Um, we need um, perspective, prospectively designed randomized controlled studies in order to get that answer, and those are underway. Um, <clears throat> uh, and certainly we've heard some anecdotal evidence this drug might be working, and it certainly seems promising, but again, we have to be cautious. Um, there has been some interesting data coming out of studies that uh, has involved the transfer of plasma from patients who were severely infected, who recovered, and then given back to other severe patients. So this is basically tra- transferring, if you will, the immune system from one patient to the next. Um, there have been uh, two studies that uh, caught our eye in particular uh, seven out of ten patients that were treated this way had undetectable virus at day six. Uh, in another such study, five out of five patients showed a symptom improvement, with three out of five of them coming off of ventilators by day ten. And then there have been uh, there was one study where this plasma was actually purified to a higher degree to get down to IVIG, which is a, a therapeutic that is uh, also uh, <clears throat> approved for other indications. But in this case, the IVIG was coming from infected patients. And there, in three patients, there was some encouraging activity. On the supportive care front, we've been looking at uh, two anti-inflammatory drugs that are FDA-approved. Uh, one is Actemera from Roche. One, the other is Kevzara from, from Regeneron Sanofi. Um, these are targeting the uh, interleukin-6 receptor. Interleukin-6 is a cytokine that is overactivated in end stages of <coughs> COVID-19 infection. And it's been shown to be a master regulator of the inflammatory response. Um, th- there is some early data that suggests that dr- those drugs could work. On the vaccine front, um, we're, we're very intrigued with uh, work that's going on by a number of different parties out there. 
Um, specifically, we've been following the uh, RNA vaccine and development by Moderna. Um, this is a, uh, a, a drug which really consists of genetic material that when injected uh, is, exploits the, the patient as its own factory to make the antigenic protein to be excreted. Um, Moderna has shown that this particular approach works for the treatment for the development of other vaccines, including cytomegalovirus in early trials, um, and they have also shown that it works preclinically for treating a related coronavirus or developing a vaccine for a related coronavirus called MERS, which was a part of an epidemic about uh, uh, eight years ago. Um, the um, this trial is underway, uh, as far as we understand, uh, uh, by the National Institute of Health, um, and we're expecting we'll see some preliminary results from this study from human volunteers in June. Uh, specifically, we will be looking for whether any neutralizing antibodies uh, are arising in these patients, and certainly we'll be looking for safety. Uh, Moderna has indicated that this drug could be available on a compassionate use basis for healthcare workers in the fall, pending results and then potentially could be available to the general public. We're estimating uh, probably by, uh, conservatively by summer of next year. Uh, another vaccine that we're uh, hoping to be pay uh, close attention to once it gets into the clinic is out of Johnson & Johnson. Uh, they have announced that they'll be starting a clinical trial in September uh, with government agencies, and again, that drug could be available uh, on a compassionate use basis potentially for uh, investigators. I want to caution that vaccines, um, there, there's no guarantee that these things are going to work. I mean, they have worked uh, for preventing measles and polio and chickenpox, um, but, um, you know, with with other viral diseases such as the flu, we we rarely see uh, 100% degrees of protection, actually oftentimes maybe only three, 30 or 40% protection depending upon the season. Um, and to our knowledge, there have been no vaccines developed uh, in, in humans for, uh, for coronavirus viral infections. So this all needs to be figured out, uh, certainly how to dose these drugs, whether a booster is going to be required, whether adjuvants are going to be required. That all remains to be seen. So that's our overview of the therapeutic and uh, vaccine space. And with that, I'll, I'll turn it back over to Brian. Thanks, George. This week, we have a very unique opportunity to have a doctor on the front lines and also someone that worked at the FDA, like Dr. White, to listen and interact with one of our subject matter specialists, George Farmer, who has been an analyst in the biotech and drug space for multiple years to kind of interact. So I thought we would switch things up here a little bit and have Dr. White either interject on what he heard from George, George or actually have Dr. White have an opportunity to ask George a direct question. And so with that, Dr. White, I'll hand it back to you. Sure. Um, I think that was a uh, very measured uh, approach to where we are. Just having um, been at FDA, really see a wide spectrum. And I think, you know, what I've been talking about before, I think more of the excitement is around potential treatments right now than perhaps where we are on vaccines recognizing in the vaccine space for viruses, it's been particularly challenging. Luckily, there's more than one trial underway, as you've talked about. So there, there's a, always the risk that you have to act pretty early based on preliminary data 
in terms of manufacturing vaccine. That's why we have the challenges with influenza. We don't always get, um, you know, the, the best vaccine every year. So I think that's an important point. And, and I think, you know, what we've always talked about when I was at FDA is the right drug for the right person and the right dose. Um, so I was glad to hear about recognizing that there's still a lot of side effects. But if I asked, posed a question, I'd say, you know, where there's a lot of potential opportunities in this issue of convalescent plasma, but we forget that that's not like taking a pill, you know, or a simple infusion. There's mm-hmm. some resource intensity to that, and there are potential side effects in terms of allergic reactions, anaphylaxis, um, other broad issues of fatigue and temperature and things like that. How would you judge, you know, or rate convalescent plasma to some of these other treatment strategies? Um, well, the convalescent plasma approach certainly seems viable given that theoretically the donor plasma should have antibodies uh, floating around in that plasma. And if the patient recovered from his or her disease, then one could suspect that those antibodies may have been playing a role by playing a neutralizing function. So um, uh, just by transferring those antibodies to a sick patient, perhaps you can you can provide that benefit to the sick patient who may not be in the position to mount the kind of antibody response that would be required to cure to, to cure the disease. But I think I mean it, it sounds great, um, sort of on paper and. It's, you know, we have these these bits of evidence that this could work. Um, Dr. White, you probably may know better than I would, but I don't know of any other uh, treatment where this is it, this is used in other disease settings. Um, it, it, it does appear to make a lot of sense, but like like you said, there are a lot of other confounding factors. Um, do, you, do you have any view as to whether these approaches have been successful uh, with other diseases? It's been challenging. I think it's more, you know, theoretical. Um, and there is a trial currently underway at Mount Sinai. I think there's just also the challenges in terms of where is the funding for something like that. But but I think, you know, in terms of as we discuss the full armamentarium, it's important to go over, you know, what they all are. And And what I also want to point out that you point out is, you know, we're in a epidemic, but we still have to have that objectivity of peer review, of data analysis. You know, we have to to find that balance. But you're right, I think in convalescent plasma, it's still a little more theoretical. We have to think more in terms of what other infectious diseases will we seem that to be a benefit. And really what we're talking about it here is for those patients that really are in a critical state, not early on in yeah. the disease process. Yeah. Yes. I think um, perhaps the, the direct antivirals look to be most promising to me, um, just given the decades of research that has gone into this approach for treating uh, other viral infections. Um, you know, the challenge has really been, I think, uh, side effects and uh, uh, recognizing that, that the viral enzyme machinery is, is very different from the, from the human machinery. But uh, uh, certainly the in vitro preclinical data suggests that this approach should work. And there are lots of other uh, uh, anti-direct antiviral treatments out there that are FDA approved to choose from. So if, if this approach doesn't work, perhaps there are others. 
Well, thank you, Dr. White and George Farmer. This is some great back and forth and really was additive uh, to this week's call. Uh, with that, we are now going to move on to the macro portion of our call and hand it off to Deputy Chief Economist, Michael Gregory. Go ahead, Michael. Uh, thanks, Brian. Well, uh, after all that optimism, a little more pessimism, unfortunately. Uh, we're beginning to see uh, uh, in the economic data the devastating impact uh, of uh, COVID-19 on the economy and the sh- shutdown of the economy. Uh, and, of course, we had on Friday the uh, employment report out of the U.S., uh, 701,000 decline in payroll jobs. Uh, and uh, the, the one that really stood out to me uh, was uh, not so much on the establishment survey, which uh, generated that uh, 701 decline, but the household survey, because that's where you're going to pick up uh, self-employed, gig economy, uh, gig economy workers, things like that. And, and uh, household employment uh, fell by just under three million, uh, whopping decline. And uh, uh, about uh, the labor force actually declined uh, about 1.6 million. So a lot of those people that lose their job stopped looking altogether, and that sort of kept the unemployment rate from fully reflecting that uh, 3 million increase in unemployed. Uh, the unemployment rate, is, as everyone knows, went up from 3.5% to 4.4%. But, you know, if, if you were to, uh, uh, you know, include those that uh, basically uh, were discouraged and, and simply didn't look for a job because they didn't think they'd be able to find one in, in the current economy, and that sort of picked up in the U6 uh, a measure of underemployment that went from seven percent to eight point seven percent, a one point uh, seven percentage point increase. So, so clearly, uh, you know, uh, 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 a sense of this, this is how weak the economy is becoming. And we do know since uh, the, uh, the that survey period, which generated uh, that employment report, uh, we've had a couple more weeks of uh, further increases in uh, uh, unemployment insurance claims in the U.S. Uh, at 10 million over the two latest weeks. Now, uh, in not seasonally adjusted terms, it turns out to be about 8.7, and we quibble about whether or not they should be uh, seasonally adjusting the, these figures, uh, but whether it's 8.5 or 10 million, that's still a lot, uh, uh, and the market is expecting about a 5 million increase uh, in, uh, in the latest week, so that unemployment rate is going to continue to rise. The previous high for the jobless rate in the U.S. was in December 1982, 10.8%, and we judge that we are going to be topping that one. Now, in Canada, on Friday, we get uh, the employment report for March, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's will capture a slightly more current period than the U.S. figures, and as a result, a, a heftier job decline. We're looking for 600,000 uh, lower jobs uh, in, in March, and that will push the unemployment rate up to 8.5% from 5.6%. Keep in mind that uh, through the end of March, uh, the government was reporting they had 2.13 million applications, uh, commutative applications for unemployment insurance. So uh, that figure also is going to move higher. The previous peak for the Canadian jobless rate also uh, in December 1982 was 13.1%. We're not we may take a run at that. We don't think we'll, we'll top that, but, you know, uh, it, it's so uncertain at this point in time. And, in fact, any kind of forecasting, quite frankly, is, is very difficult at this stage because it all depends on how long this uh, uh, virus lasts. And, uh, I mean, there are certain rules of thumb that we're simply going by now, uh, and, and uh, we, we do know that, you know, uh, one week's worth of economic output is roughly around 2%. Of, uh, of of GDP, 
And uh, if you figure maybe the anywhere from 25 to 40 percent of the economy is shut down, uh, uh, then you're looking about 50 basis points to 75 basis points of hit to growth every week. The economy is closed, or every week that uh, we're dealing with this crisis. So if you assume a 10-week, uh, uh, you know, uh, situation, you're looking between five and seven and a half percent hit to average growth for the year. And if that happens all in a quarter, it's a uh, you know 22 to 34 base uh, annualized uh, uh, hit to growth. Uh, and uh, uh, so these numbers are mind-boggling, and and, and uh, we just really don't know how long this thing is going to last. And uh, you know, I was encouraged by by listening to our previous speakers that you know, if in fact we do see a a, a mid-April uh, peak in, in cases and, and deaths and things like that, that maybe uh, seeing some of the uh, uh, physical distancing rules relaxed by the second half of May. Which uh, which puts that in sort of the ten week camp as opposed to something longer uh, is, is would be a little more likely. But then again, we simply do not know. Now we, we were seeing on the policy front that uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy are are, are, are moved uh, quite quite quickly uh, and in uh, a, a kind of a pace we've never really experienced before. Uh, things calmed down a little bit last week. Uh, because of how uh, uh, quickly uh, uh, you know central banks and and and, and the governments have worked before, uh, but there was a lot of talk, for example, uh, south of the border in the U.S. with respect to a, a phase four fiscal package following that 2.3 trillion dollar package that uh, President Trump signed on on March 27th. And uh, included in that package, uh, as, as it's been discussed, is uh, a potential increase in infrastructure outlays, a, a very similar to what we had, say, in the, in the New Deal in the 1930s. It, it's, it's interesting that we're sort of pulling out a policy prescription from literally the worst economy we've had since the Great Depression. Another measure that's been mentioned as well is to uh, uh, lift the state and local tax, the SALT deduction limit that was imposed uh, with uh, tax reform. Uh, also, uh, the Fed uh, uh, on uh, March 31st introduced a, a repo facility for foreign and international monetary authorities. Uh, a lot of emerging markets, for example, were having a lot of currency pressures, were selling their reserves, selling treasuries uh, uh, to uh, uh, purchase their own currencies, and that was creating some volatility, some weakness, dislocations in the treasury market, and the Fed felt it was appropriate to, uh, to deal with that. Now, on the Canadian front, uh, no new measures announced, although the wage subsidy uh, that was announced on uh, March 27th was uh, was fleshed out. The details were given there. Uh, a 12-week program that would uh, subsidize businesses 75% of their wages from March 15th until June 6th. Uh, uh, so the government's thinking of a 12-week program here. But that's going to cost $71 billion. And it's interesting, uh, when you take a look at all the three uh, uh, phases of fiscal stimulus that's gone into the U.S. so far, it kind of weighs in at just that 11% of GDP. And with this new measure in, in Canada, when you also include the tax deferrals and the support for loan programs, you weigh in at about 10.9% of GDP. It's a very comparable uh, full you know, degrees of stimulus uh, that, that are going on. But, but clearly, you know, g- given the uncertainties that lie ahead, one would think there's more that governments uh, have to do and I suspect will do going forward. And I'll leave that uh, uh, for now, Brian. 
Thanks, Michael. Before we share our formal comments in terms of investment strategy, I'm going to ask Marie if she could open up the lines and provide some guidance in terms of queuing up questions. With respect to investment strategy and what uh, we see going on in terms of not only in the United States, but Canada, we've made several comments over the last couple of weeks, and especially the last several days, that things are beginning to normalize. And on a day like today, where most of our calls and comments and uh, special meetings with investors have been dominated by, well, Brian, why is the market up? Well, I think the market is up for uh, today for a couple of reasons. Number one, we in our work have been talking about a less negative second derivative move in terms of coronavirus COVID-19. If you've been listening to these calls over the last four weeks, Dr. White has been very consistent in his, his call for timing of the peak. It appears now that that actually is, we're seeing anecdotal and real evidence of that occurring. And so I think from the second derivative, less negative move on coronavirus, that is actually beginning to develop in the market, number one. Number two is that although Michael Gregory had some dire news in terms of the economy, it's not all bad. And the good news is, is that when you're dealing with economic statistics and fundamental statistics that, yes, are so negative and so dire, these are subject matters and statistics that we as investors are used to dealing with. We know how to look at earnings. We know how to look at the economy. We don't know how to measure and look at viruses and pandemics and epidemics. We all try to be a closet uh, epidemiologist or a doctor, but that's not our gig. Our gig is to look at earnings in the economy. And albeit the forecasts for earnings are dire, the forecasts for the economy are dire right now, we in our investment strategy work continue to believe that the recovery in both U.S. stocks and Canadian stocks will be unprecedented to the tune and similar to what the unprecedented cyclical bear market that both markets endured in a 20 to 22 day fashion that again, we've never seen in the history of markets before. And so I believe in our work, we believe that we will see an unprecedented recovery. Now it's just a matter of how and when the recovery takes shape and what the habits of investors are going to be from that. We continue to believe in the United States that sectors such as communication services, technology in parts of consumer discretionary will be the leading sectors for the next 12 to 18 months. In Canada, we believe it is communication services. Yes, financial and part of energy. Clearly, energy and global markets received a bid last week in terms of the ongoing back and forth between the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Russia. But we do believe that that is a clear, clearly positive sign for especially Canada. We still believe that North American equities are the place to be with respect to, to performance of earnings, earnings stability, operating performance, things like return on assets and return on equity, much more stable and much more discernible in the United States and Canada relative to the rest of the world. Maybe, makes Marie, while we try to figure that out, why don't we go back to one of our panelists and and ask um, Dr. White a question, uh, especially given what he heard from George Farmer. Dr. White, you've talked a lot, and he did today, about treatment versus vaccines. And being at the FDA, I know there's been such a, such a focus on vaccines and the timing of that. Do you see a fundamental change in this, during this crisis over the last four to six weeks, especially with respect to how the FDA 
is looking at the potential um, the potential passing of of the vaccine in terms of getting it through. The, has the process changed? Is it slowing? Mm-hmm. Is it the same? Or what have you encountered so far? I, and I'm actually talking to Janet Woodcock, the Senate Director for Drugs, Vaccines Actually Are Biologics, later this week, and happy to share um, what I hear. Uh, we do it in the public context of an interview. I think on the treatment side, we're seeing a lot of emergency use authorization. So they're getting the drugs out there, but they're trying to do it in the context of a trial, including the real-world evidence. So that's an important point on treatment. I think on vaccines, the challenge is you have to make the decisions very soon in terms of manufacturing, right? So we're going to look at Phase one is going to be is currently underway. We'll look at phase two and see some issues still of safety, but some preliminary information around efficacy. If you want the vaccine available, you know, six, 12 months from then, you have to make the decision to start manufacturing. That's the challenge. But I don't think in terms of the regulatory process, it's, it's changing. I think what we're seeing is a quicker process in terms of clinical trial recruitment, IRB approval, and getting them underway. I don't know if George or others agree with that, but that's where I see the changes, not as much on the regulatory side for a vaccine. I see the changes on the regulatory side and more flexibility on the, on the treatment side, on the drug side. That's a great point. George, do you have anything to add on top of that as an analyst? Have you been following this for years? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Dr. White certainly on, on the manufacturing point regarding vaccine development. Um, uh, I, I, you know, we've been looking at this company, Moderna, for a while now uh, and looking at their vaccine development approach, which is quite different from conventional vaccine approaches of the past. Uh, you know, the, the vaccine uh, really starts out as a, as a genetic message that is Used, that is then injected into a, a, a patient's arm, and then ultimately the patient uh, manufactures the protein of interest. Um, the, the, the process is, is very flexible. Um, if the wrong protein uh, is made, then the genetic message can be changed, changed very rapidly, and new vaccine can be made uh, quite rapidly as well. So the, 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 the manufacturing commitments of the old don't necessarily apply to this approach. Now, that doesn't mean that this approach is going to work, but um, it is, you know, one, you know, a piece of evidence that emerging technologies can now be applied to vaccine development the same way they've been applied to, to therapeutics. But we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Thank you, George. And Marie, we'll turn it back to you. Do we have some questions from the field? We have a question from uh, Steve Wallet. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Yes, Steve Wallace from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're a small business and a BMO customer here in Wisconsin. There are three um, U.S. government programs for small business. Uh, we have applied for all of them. One was the original SBA disaster loan. A second was what they call the streamlined loan, which is to get money within three to five days, a small amount. Um, and then finally, this PPP. Are you aware of any companies that have received any of these funds, um, in particular the streamlined money, which is three to five days, it's been over that. We're at six or seven days now. We've not received everything. And, and the PPP, I know, was a slower rollout, at least at our local BMO, Harris, uh, 
branches than they thought, but are you aware, are there any statistics, has the SBA dispersed any funds either directly or through the local banks for small business relief? Uh, Michael, do you have anything on that? And then I might throw uh, some commentary. Go ahead, Michael. Sure. Uh, well, I, quite frankly, I haven't seen anything, and I've been looking from uh, and from data out of the SBA to see, uh, you know, uh, the, the uptake and, and, and the activity. But, uh, like, for example, some, some of the activities ramped up on Friday, so it's uh, – uh, you know, uh, no, no, I have, the, the bottom line, I have not seen anything yet which would suggest, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the level of activity uh, or what kind of people, uh, you know, the uptake has been so far. Uh, Brian? No, I would echo that comment, but I would also, too, Steve, really lean on your relationship manager at BMO Harris. I'm sure that they'll have much more bottoms up and on the line, front line information that we would have, but I would say, too, that you know, we've been scouring as well and trying to get as much information as possible, and the information right now is, is quite lagged. Uh, Marie, do we have any other questions? We have a go question from Ian Smith. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. So a uh, question uh, regarding uh, demographics. We're all familiar that uh, uh, elderly uh, people are more affected than, uh, than others. Uh, but I'm particularly interested in are there any working theories regarding uh, uh, by gender, specifically the reports that uh, men are almost twice as most more likely to uh, uh, suffer fatalities from the illness than women, and also uh, the relative absence of uh, serious infections and death among children. Yeah. So I assume that's for me. This is uh, John. So you're right. The data has consistently shown that men are more likely to die from coronavirus than women. It's actually been seen in every country. Sometimes it's twice. Sometimes it's not as that much. And there's various hypotheses as to why that might be the case. We think there's greater obesity in men. There's uh, greater use of alcohol and smoking in men, typically around the world. The other issue could relate to hormones. We think there's some immunogenic aspect of estrogen that might be protective for women, we don't know that. And we also think that men may not follow social distancing and social hygiene. And there's actually some data to show that. Um, but it is a consistent piece of data that we've seen. In children, we think because there's other coronavirus that sometimes they get, they may also have some immunity as well. But it is a, is a trend that we're seeing and something that we have to continue to look at. Thank you very much. Thanks. I think we have time for one more question. Marie, is there another question out there? We have a question from Mehdi Alani. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. This is Mehdi Alani from City of Montreal. Given the, the contagion factor of this virus, is there a possibility or a risk that it will become a recurring epidemic, sort of like the flu, it comes like it becomes seasonal? And especially uh, since you mentioned that the vaccine will be released to the public possibly uh, on summer next year. So there is a real concern that the virus could reoccur in the fall. The difference will be there, though, is that we will have much more data about treatment. We will have much more progress in terms of the vaccine. But we'll also have developed some herd immunity, right? So a lot of people have contracted the virus, developed antibodies, and we think they'll have immunity. So even if it reoccurs in the fall, we'll be at a different place as to where we are. Because right now, we have no vaccine, no antibodies, no treatments. Six months from now, we'll be at a much different space in all of those areas. 
Thank you. Well, thank, thank you everyone for joining us today. I think that's the last call we're going to take for now, and we're hopeful that we can continue these calls uh, going forward. Just as a reminder, for any questions, please contact your BMO relationship manager. And please, please uh, make sure that you visit our webpage at bmocm.com and listen to our COVID-19 Insight podcast uh, for the most current updates. In addition, all of the subject matter experts um, are regular publishers of research for BMO Financial Group. Uh, so, again, reach out to your BMO Relationship Manager to see those research reports or visit the content page. Lastly, uh, Dr. White is including some slides that will be available for the first time also on that website. I want to make sure that you want to thank you. Please be well and safe. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to speak with you soon. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.